Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's Word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. Well, in 1843, Charles Dickens published one of the most enduring and well-loved stories in all of Western literature, a short novella he called A Christmas Carol. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but if you're not, it's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, that old miser, and his midnight encounters, transformative, with the spirit of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. You probably know all that, but what you might not know, I learned this at least, I assume that if I didn't know it, you also didn't know it. I don't know why I assume that, but the celebration of Christmas was actually something that was fairly recent in Charles Dickens' day. It was not uh, overly common to celebrate Christmas in the uh, centuries before uh, the 19th century. In fact, the Puritans, very famously in the 17th century, had banned the celebration of Christmas. And after that, it uh, had not really been something um, overly celebrated. So actually, when, when Dickens is writing this story... He's capitalizing on the zeitgeist. He's capturing the, 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 the moment, if you will. This holiday is growing in significance and importance, and many of the traditions that we associate with Christmas, that we just think, oh, these have been around forever, many of them are, are kind of solidified by Dickens in the writing of this story. Now, what I think uh, is remarkable about this novella is how it, it sets a pattern a pattern that will be imitated by the many, many Christmas stories that will follow a Christmas carol. It is the first example, as far as I am aware, of a Christmas story without Jesus Christ in it. Now, don't worry, I'm, this isn't going to be a long rant about the great war on Christmas or something like that. It's not, not the goal this morning. Uh, but I, I want to Think about that a little bit. I, I'm, I'm sure if you're, if you're alive on earth in 2023, you're familiar with the broad outlines of this story. What I want you to think about is this, this story of A Christmas Carol is really a narrative of conversion. It's the story of how a bad man becomes a good man. A narrative of change. How does Scrooge go from being this miser into being a man of generosity and love? It's through his encounters with these, the spirit of Christmas. He's literally transformed by Christmas itself. Not the God of Christmas, not the baby that was born on Christmas, but simply a vague Christmas. It teaches him he'll be happier if you live a life of generosity uh, and love. And he's transformed that night. Now, having said that, I, I want to make clear, I, I love Christmas Carol. This is not like a big uh, anti-Christmas Carol rant or anything like that. It's one of my all-time favorite uh, Christmas movies is the adaptation that features, uh, you know, Gonzo as Charles Dickens and uh, Kermit the Frog as Bob Cratchit, right? Married to Miss Piggy and all their daughters are pigs and all their sons are frogs. Muppet biology is interesting. Uh, but it's interesting how the story um, became sort of the dominant way that people approach Christmas stories today. Okay, Christmas represents a sort of general celebration of generosity and family and love. 
And the genuine experience of these things has this transformative power to change a person and make them less you know, materialistic or less selfish, less of a Scrooge. Now, I'm going to tell you a secret. I, I actually don't think that Christmas has any power to change anyone. I do think, though, that the one who was born on Christmas does have that power. Okay, A Christmas carol is a Christmas story, at least as our broader culture celebrates Christmas, as a um, holiday devoid of any specifically Christian content. But is there anything in this story that relates to the real story of Christmas? The real thing. I think there are a couple of things. First of all, we... Uh, you know, we kind of enter the Christmas story in the, in the same position that Scrooge does, in, in desperate need of rescue from a coming judgment that we're not even aware of, right? When Marley comes to announce judgment to Scrooge, he's unaware of it, ignorant of it, blissfully unaware. Our position mirrors his own. Like him, uh, we are in the need of some intervention. Second, the intervention comes to Scrooge from outside of him. It's a confrontation, a revelation. It's not some interior realization. As the ghosts surprise Dickens in the night, so the salvation that is brought on Christmas is something made known to us from above. Supernatural. And third, I think, like with Scrooge, the real story of Christmas is about change, about transformation, about going from one thing to another. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Christmas story through the lens of the genealogy of Jesus that opens up the New Testament, in which I read in exhaustive detail for you this morning. By opening his gospel with this genealogy, Matthew is doing something, right? He's, he's making clear to us that the story of Christmas, the story of the birth of Jesus, can only be understood in light of the history of the Old Testament, all of it. Jesus needs to be understood through the stories and prophecies and drama of God's people from the very beginning. Every name that I read, every name on that genealogy prepares for and leads to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been looking at a few of those stories. We looked at the story of Rahab. Uh, Last week, we looked at the story of Zerubbabel. And now today, as Advent draws to a close we're going to look at the last story on that list. The story of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. Now, what is the story of Joseph? In truth, uh, we don't really know much about Joseph. By the time Jesus begins his public ministry as an adult, Joseph has just disappeared from the Gospels. Presumably, he died. That would be kind of common in that era. You know, Joseph was probably a lot older than Mary, um, and so, and you know, life expectancies were fairly short. By the time Jesus is 30, Joseph's probably gone. Uh, we know nothing of his life before his betrothal to Mary. So we really don't really know much about him, honestly. We can observe certain actions that he takes and try to piece together who this man was. Now, Joseph does not appear at all in the book of Mark. And he's only briefly mentioned one time as the father of Jesus in the book of John. In Luke, he's more, he's there, but he's kind of like next to Mary, right? Mary is who we're seeing the events of Luke 2. We're seeing them through her eyes. Joseph is also present, 
but he's not really a character in that story. He's just present with Mary during all the events that happen. It's only in the book of Matthew that uh, Joseph sort of steps forward uh, into the foreground as a character that, uh, whose um, life we follow. <clears throat> so here are the events of his life as such as they appear to us, such as they have been recorded by the Holy Spirit working through Matthew. Joseph is engaged to Mary, but when he discovers that she is pregnant, he decides to divorce her quietly. Now, the, the text presents this as an act of mercy stemming from the righteous character, the upright, the justice, the love of the law that Joseph has. It's interesting, you don't necessarily connect all the time uh, an upright, just person with a merciful person, but that's how the text is asking us to understand, um, you know, in, in God's uh, understanding of righteousness, mercy and this upright law character join together in an interesting way. Anyway, so he, he's, he's merciful. The, the, the engagement is broken by her infidelity, but he wants to uh, bring about that brokenness in a way that cares for her. He's going to divorce her quietly, not subject her to public shame. But as he's considering this, uh, he has this dream. An angel comes to speak to him and tells him that Mary had not actually broken her vows, but was carrying a child conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is instructed to marry her and to adopt the son as his own son. And this is what Joseph does. Now, the book of Luke uh, contains the details of that actual birth. You notice in, in Matthew, what I just read is just like, and Jesus was born. <laughs> Luke is, the whole chapter is about Jesus being born in Luke 2. And uh, that, that was dramatized by our, our kids this morning. So I, I assume you were all here for that. So I won't even talk about that part of the story. Um, but sometime after this, Herod attempts, King Herod attempts to kill Jesus uh, out of fear of this new king that's been born, the predictions of a new king. Uh, and again, Joseph is brought into the foreground of the story now. An angel appears to Joseph, warns him about his imminent danger, and instructs him to take the child to Egypt and, and there raise him. <clears throat> and after a while, when Herod dies and it's safe for them to return to Nazareth, again, Joseph has a dream and they return. That's it. That's the end of Joseph's story. When Jesus appears, he does not reference his earthly father a single time. He talks about his heavenly father. Now, it would be possible, uh, you know, I, this is a common thing in the, in the scriptures, right? We, we don't get all the details sometimes of these stories that we want. It'd be possible, aided by a vivid imagination and maybe some informed speculation, to try and think about Joseph and, and fill in all the details that are missing. What was his marriage like? What was he like as a father to the Son of God? What did he think and feel about the events he was caught up in? How much did he understand who Jesus was and what Jesus' life meant? Well, I happen to think that if the scriptures are silent about something, I don't think it's like sinful to speculate about it or wonder about it. But if we're talking about preaching the word of God here today, we're just going to stick to what the Bible says. Because what, what Matthew tells us about Joseph is the important things we need to think about and understand about him. We don't need to go beyond it. So let's ask the question, this question. How do the authors, especially Matthew, how do they consider Joseph? What do they think about him? How do they position him in the story? Well, first question is, how is Joseph introduced? The first mention of Joseph is at the end of the genealogy, the final name. 
and this long list of names. As such, he sort of uh, embodies this whole history of God's people. All the expectations, all the promises are sort of present in Joseph. He's the final name in the history of God's people before the fulfillment of God's promises. So what can we say about Joseph? Well, first of all, God surprised Joseph. God surprised Joseph. Now remember, remember who the Jewish people were. All those names on the genealogy, what they meant. Since the first name on that list, there were promises that God had made. And those promises, uh, they were just sort of sitting out there at the time of Joseph. Never been fulfilled. Okay, Abraham, he's promised a son, but a son who would bring blessing to all the nations. That hasn't happened yet. David was promised a son, but a son who would reign as king forever. That hasn't happened yet. Israel had been promised a restoration from their exile in Babylon, but a restoration that would surpass in power and in glory what had come before. That hadn't happened. Now, some Jews had probably despaired of these promises being fulfilled, but Joseph was a righteous man, meaning that he believed the promises of God. He was expectant. He was waiting. And yet, even to this upright man possessing the promises of his heritage, when the fulfillment of God's promises comes to him, he is surprised. Now, perhaps it's un- unfair to expect him not to be surprised. You know, if you hear your fiance is pregnant, your first thought probably isn't it. Ah, yes, I- Isaiah 9, I remember that prophecy. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. Probably not your first uh, reaction if you hear that sort of thing. But uh, we, we do have this uh, sort of development. I, I think this is what's happening here. We see it over, over, over and over again in the scriptures. God is always at work. And his work has this inevitable character to it. It's the fulfillment of things that he has promised to do. And yet, though he prepares the ground for it, when fulfillment comes, it's a surprise. It's a shock. People are caught off guard. Now, let me tell you, the world before Jesus is a place of promises. Now, promises are not enough. Promises need fulfillment. And we trust promises so far as we trust the integrity and character of the one who made the promise. But eventually, a promise must be fulfilled, or else it is empty, worthless. So the surprise that Joseph receives is this, that the time has now come for God to do something, to act. And Joseph would be present. Joseph would be caught up in the action that God takes. Now another thing we can say about Joseph is that he believes God. Believes God. Now at least in our text, Joseph receives through the the medium of these vivid dreams three messages from God. And these messages, they they go beyond all the testimony that God gave in the scriptures, right? The scriptures that Joseph read would have been the ordinary revelation from God, the source of the promises that they trusted in, the sources of the commands that they strove to live their life by. But now that God is acting in a new way, we need something new in revelation. We need an extraordinary revelation. Promises are now being fulfilled. Joseph is being called to trust in God in a new way and believe in him. Think, what is, what is Joseph asked, asked to believe in these promises, 
in, the, in these revelations from God. Think about them. The, the nature of Mary's pregnancy, the birth of the son promised for so long. That's the most extraordinary thing to believe. The, the other ones, though, are, would you know, be equally shocking that he's about to die or that it's now safe for him to return. All of these are difficult to believe, although in varying degrees. But notice Joseph's response. In each case, it's immediate. As soon as the revelation comes to him, he believes and acts in line with it. Faith demonstrated by the nature of his response. Joseph believes. Now, the temptation here is to uh, sort of elevate Joseph to praise him, go on and on about how amazing his faith is, to set him up as a person, maybe to imitate. I think you should imitate Joseph and his faith. But think of it this way. If, if your friend came to you and uh, told you that he had had a dream explaining that his fiancée's recent pregnancy was a you know, magical baby from the Holy Spirit of God, would you praise him for believing that? This is sort of difficult to consider, right? Joseph does believe God, and his belief is born out. All right, so the baby that is born does end up being the savior of the world. Like, it does end up being raised from the dead. Angels herald its birth. He's vindicated by his belief in what the angel said. And later, when it reveals about Herod's uh, a, a, a attempt to kill Jesus, that's born out as well. Herod does actually attempt to kill them, and they do only narrowly escape. And then when it's time for him to return, his, his faith is vindicated, is what I'm saying there. The key point that I want to make is that the one who really gets the glory for the faith of Joseph, it has to be God. When Joseph has his dream, the revelation comes with such an overwhelming power, such a, a complete and total convincingness that Joseph, Joseph is compelled to believe it. The comparison point here that we could make is when uh, it, it, people like Isaiah or Ezekiel in the Old Testament, when they're brought into the presence of God, they have these visions of the throne room where they're brought before the unveiled, like revealed presence of the God who created all things. How do they respond? Now, they, they don't need to sort of reason through how to respond, right? They're not like, okay, I'm in the throne room of God. There's God. He's the creator. So I should probably uh, show some sort of contrition or you know, I, maybe I should get down on my knees and worship him. There's no reasoning to it, right? The unveiled presence of God simply compels them. They fall on their face before God. They confess their sins to him. They plead for mercy because God's unveiled presence is so powerful. This is what, when, when, when revelation comes, when God makes himself known to Joseph, it's in such a form that belief is summoned in him. Faith is called forth. Now, what I have to tell you is that God's word now, today, is no less powerful, no less capable of creating in us that sort of unconquerable faith. This is how we imitate Joseph. This is the reality of his example. This is the sort of faith that God's promises, his revelation, summons in us. <clears throat> Now, the last thing we can say about Joseph is that he is a sinner in need of salvation. 
Now, you may not know this, maybe you do, but in, in the world of like the, the academic study of the Bible, uh, of the New Testament, you can read like thousands of articles. Like you could literally spend your whole life doing this. Articles and books trying to explain in increasingly elaborate ways what the purpose of Jesus' life was. What did he think his purpose was? What did the authors of the New Testament think his purpose of? What was he trying to do? What was he trying to accomplish? People spent their whole careers debating this. It's even become sort of a, uh, a commonplace saying, even among more orthodox and conservative uh, scholars and pastors and down even to people, uh, uh, Christians, the gospel is about more than just personal salvation. Something bigger, something grander. That's why I love the simplicity of what the angel tells Joseph here. All the debate, all the academic work is just answered. Okay, It's so simple that you can teach it to your children. So simple that the academics miss it. This is what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph is one of those people. That's what Jesus was born to do. This is the purpose of his life. This is how he fulfills promises. The whole of history is leading to the birth of the one who would save people from their sins. All the promises are focused on salvation from sin, what they were expecting, what they were hoping for, what the purpose of like, the continued history of God's people is to bring forth this one who would be capable and able to bring salvation to all that came before and all that would come after. Joseph is the most immediate one. He is a sinner in need of salvation. The child that will be born to his wife is his salvation. This is the need of humanity from the beginning the whole genealogy is full of sinners. All the promises are of future salvation in Jesus. The problem is simple. Sin. The remedy. I will send my son. Well, now let's return to the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. That er story of Christmas. There is a simple Christmas narrative at the heart of that story. And it's one that we see repeated in virtually every Christmas story that follows. Even the countless Hallmark Christmas movies follow this script. It's timeless. There's a sinner in need of transformation. They have some confrontation with Christmas itself, the spirit of Christmas. And as a result, they're changed into a better person at the end. Is that not the narrative of Christmas movies? I'm sure you can find exceptions, all right? But you know what I mean. That's the general narrative that you see, even in the Hallmark movies, right? The sinner is the uh, overworked woman in this big city. He needs to go find salvation in the small town from... Uh, okay, anyway. That's the story, all right? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this is just an attempt to recapture Christmas without Jesus. There's a desire, a desire for what Jesus does, the fulfillment of all of history, what we expect and hope for, it's there in the manger. Salvation, transformation, hope. The desire is present in these stories that we watch. It's the same shape of the story, but its power is taken away. Well, ultimately, it's a fantasy. In my opinion, in the real world, Ebenezer Scrooge is not changed forever. The power of greed and habits of life 
are too powerful. I'm a pessimist when it comes to the ability of human beings to change themselves. Like, born out from my own experience of trying to change myself. Human nature needs help from outside of itself. The real Christmas story is Joseph's. A sinner like his whole family, everyone in his ancestry, all the way back to Abraham before him, even all the way back to Adam, surprised and confronted by the reality of God, his word and promises, undergoing an experience with someone who is really capable of transformation because God has actually acted. The power of God is at work in the Christmas story. God descends to earth, takes up human flesh, dies for sin, and in dying, conquers. He's resurrected. His spirit goes forth. And so he confronts you and me and all of us. The word of God comes home. This is the heart of Christmas. Real power, real hope, real change. Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. And in that transformation, have hope for eternity. Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.